Welcome to Season 2 of the Adult Children Voices Across America Speakers Meeting Podcast. You can attend this meeting live on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific Time using the Zoom ID 848-5208-0640, password 061120. For more information about adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, visit adultchildren.org. The following speaker share from Sarah was recorded on October 28, 2021. Hi, everybody. My name is Sarah. I am a very grateful ACA. Thank you so much, Carla, first of all, for being my helper. She's uh, been a godsend for me, um, very technically oriented, and she's just, I, I love her with all my heart. So thank you. And um, I wanted to start with a beautiful poem that um, I think really captures a lot of what adult children feel like. I also want to say thank you so much to my home group people who I see numerous people, and you know who you are, um, that are here supporting me, and it means so much to me. Um, I I do attend three ACA meetings every week. It's part of my program. And I'm so grateful for the program. And I'll get into a little bit more, but I want to read this beautiful poem. You may have heard it. It's called Comes the Dawn. (sighs) After a while, you learn the subtle difference between holding a hand and chaining a soul. And you learn that love doesn't mean leaning and company doesn't mean security. And you begin to learn that kisses aren't contracts and presents aren't promises. And you begin to accept your defeats with your head up and your eyes open with the grace of a grown-up, not the grief of a child. And you learn to build all your roads on today because tomorrow's ground is too uncertain for plans and future have, futures have a way of falling down in mid-flight. After a while, you learn that even sunshine burns if you get too much. So you plant your own garden and decorate your own soul instead of waiting for someone to bring you flowers. And you learn that you really can endure, that you really are strong and you really do have worth. And you learn and learn with every goodbye you learn. It makes me wanna cry because it really is beautiful and it's so true. So, I'm going to have Carla put um, uh, up my pictures because I think they really speak so loudly of who I was as a little girl. Um, I'm from New York originally, and um, I was an adopted child. I lived in a foundling home until I was nine months old. Um, And I wanted to read something about that that's in our book. It's on page 85 in the big red book. It says, results of abandonment. Renee Spitz in his classic study of infants in foundling homes discovered that babies who were left alone for long periods of time could not tolerate the isolation and lost the will to live. The despair of not being held during, except during basic care left infants without hope of receiving the comfort and love they needed to feel safe and secure. So 
I probably read that at some point because I had underlined it. But when I was looking through my book tonight, because I really feel that literature is so very important. Uh, look at that face, you know. Um, my loving parent loves that little girl. Um, my original name by my birth mother was Beth. So I call the little girl that I have, that's a little baby doll that I bought for myself, baby girl Beth. And as you can see, my parents were pretty well off. My father was a physician. My mother had been a teacher. She stopped teaching when they adopted me. But um, I really was so lost and never felt a part of anything. And I, um, my parents did not beat me but I was so neglected emotionally. At first they called me the chosen child and then they adopted my brother when I was five and he was a beautiful baby. And all of a sudden I was tossed aside and I felt so abandoned and hence the beginning. I already had had a rough start, but look at that face when I was, I was about 14. I have had issues with my weight all my life. And I would control my feelings by using food to avoid. And so my first program was Overeaters Anonymous. And you can see with my mother there, my beautiful mother, who I want to talk about for a moment, because my mother was very much about her status and her looks and her sexuality her beauty, and she would never come downstairs where she wasn't made up. And my father, I believe both of them had some narcissistic tendencies. And, you know, I love them. Uh, they were my parents, but I never felt loved by them. That's my mother and my father. And I had, my, my little girl was next to me. And, you know, I had moments where I felt um, happy with them, but probably 80% of the time, at least, I was not. And um, my father was a doctor and I did become a nurse. Um, and I think I always wanted their love, wanted their approval, wanted their Um, acceptance. And it was a very confusing family. So you can see how heavy I was. And I was pregnant with my son, but then how thin I got. And I want to talk about that too, because that's a really important piece. In a way, I was my father's wife in a very strange way. Um, when I was thin, my father would make comments to me that were inappropriate that felt really uncomfortable. Hence, I put on a lot of weight to protect myself. And I always felt the message I got was that men want women sexually. And that to be beautiful, you had to be thin 
my father was very attracted to blonde women and he would make comments in front of my mother saying stuff like, your mother's beautiful from the neck up. But, you know, it was, there was, I don't think there was any concept that people had feelings in our home. And certainly not the idea that we all have different opinions and different thoughts and different belief systems. That was not encouraged at all. Uh, so my parents had the country club life, you know, they, as a matter of fact, they would join country clubs that they were probably on the lower end of the um, economic scale. And, you know, it was just so much about status. So I really have issues with that still to this day. But I want to read something that was from um, that same particular chapter. And because I am also in, in three other programs, to be honest with you, uh, it says um, on page 89, it says, gratitude to AA and Al-Anon. We are grateful to Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon family groups for bringing clarity and sanity to our lives. In the clear, consistent mirror of the steps and traditions, we finally see who we are, adult children of alcoholics. And this was what meant so much to me when I read it. Our particular need is to create a new identity based on being valued and loved. And I want to say to everybody that's sitting here listening to me tonight, I value you. I love you. Because, you know, those are the things that I heard when I first came into re recovery. Um, and I came into recovery in 1995 uh, through the doors of Overeaters Anonymous. And I did try, uh, and, and I came in through a therapist. But and what she said to me was that I was hiding behind my weight and that I should go to Overeaters Anonymous. But what I realized in looking at, and, and Carla, why don't we show, show my largest picture? That was when I first came in with the green top on. But, um, and then I got thin and there I was, I went through relapse and I got to, to almost 300 pounds. So you can see I really used food, and I think many of us do, in all honesty, not all of us, but I think there are many of us that use substances. And, and I think there's many compulsive overeaters, many people that struggle with weight because we are trying to protect ourselves. At least that's been my experience. So today I'm so grateful to have the program. Um, I was a very rebellious child. Um, you know, I started acting out early. And, um, you know, a parent looks at, at, a child looks at parents, at their facial expressions, at their tone, of, listens to their tone of voice, watches the actions. And I remember seeing this thing where they did this experiment and they showed this baby, um, the mother, was interacting with the baby and go, oh, you're so sweet. I just love you. You're doing such a good job. I'm here for you and all this. And then all of a sudden, and you could see the baby was like moving around. I mean, this was a very young baby and she was just really enjoying the mother's interaction. And then the mother 
turned away and the baby was trying to get her attention and the baby started getting very anxious and very upset. And like you could see, and all of a sudden the baby, this beautiful baby that had been giggling and cooing and everything started to scream, scream hysterically. And this wasn't, the, the, the whole idea was to show what happens when children do not get their needs met, do not, are not seen, heard, or cherished. You know, the word cherished comes into my mind. So um, I want you to know that what I wanted all my life was to feel loved and accepted for me. Not for how I look, not for my intelligence, you know, just being a precious child of God and this idea that I am, uh, I have worth. I have worth and I am valued. And that followed me throughout my life. And what I did was I became promiscuous. I hitchhiked cross country. I married four men. I've been married four times because what I wanted all along was somebody see me, hear me, and love me. Um, you know, this false self, this idea of, of the false self, which constantly seeks affection and seeks outward approval, that was what that was all about. And I wanted to say something that I've really learned, and it's in my heart of hearts, I think it's such an important concept of our program, that if we want to help heal that inner child, we really, really have to work on becoming and practicing being the loving parent. That little child is not going to come out if that child does not feel safe. And I don't know about you, but I do not feel safe, did not feel safe, and I really have to work at it. So a lot of the work that I do is using affirmations. So, you know, I was a rebel, I was an approval seeker. So obviously I was the scapegoat in the house, in the family. You know, my parents would fight with each other. And what I ended up feeling like is, and I remember my mother yelling at my father, you're always at the country club, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and he would drink there and then he would come home. And, and, you know, I remember feeling this sense that I wanted to protect my father from my mother because she could be so vile and so mean. And then the next moment, she could be this loving, interactive, you know, people loved my mother, adored her, but she could be like a shrew, like yelling and screaming. And, you know, then we say to ourselves, I don't ever wanna be that. I don't wanna be that. But what happens? We become that, I became that, you know? And my poor children, you know, I, you know, what I can say today is, and when I say my poor children, I have complete empathy for my daughter. She's an adult child herself. She's 45. I'm 64. And what I feel today is, you know, remember, I came in in 1995. I've done a lot of work. I'm not saying I don't have a lot more to go. Believe me. I know I do. I mean, there's always more. But what I believe today is it's all about self-compassion. 
It's all about nurturing ourselves. It's all about taking ownership of the fact that I am a perfectly imperfect human being. And that's okay. When I notice, I work with a gal, I work with children now. I, I, I was a nurse for 28 years. I started in, in um, 1986, I became a nurse. And five years ago, I stopped. And I've done all kinds of nursing. And interestingly enough, it's funny because my the way reason I became a nurse was partially my father, but the other part was when I was pregnant with my with my daughter, she was born in 1976. The person I was married to, her father, was an addict, was totally emotionally unavailable. He would take off. See, I married someone very much like my father because he was very much a sex addict. He was, uh, he was into pornography. He went to all kinds of, you know, uh, uh, places like that. And I remember feeling so small and so ugly and so unattractive. And I remember begging him because he would take off on a Friday, take all the money, leave me with my little girl. And he wouldn't come back until Monday and then would have blown all the money. But this, this thing that I would marry these men that were like either alcoholics or sex addicts, that was very common. That was the theme. And I think the idea was somehow anybody loved me, you know, just give me even the, a moment of attention and I'm like yours. And so I would, I would want to, I would be sexual to try to attain the love. And it's not to say that, that I, What I, what I realized today is that I was so mixed up about what intimacy was. And, you know, what I've learned along the way is intimacy is intimacy, being vulnerable, letting somebody really know who I am. And that takes a lot of courage, it takes a lot of courage to be real. So I, I just wrote some notes. And I want to make sure I hit on all my feel, all my, the things that I wrote. And like one of the things that I think is the most important thing that I've had to learn along the way is I have to learn to sit with my feelings, all of them. Sometimes there's a guilt about feeling good, you know, sometimes, and, and, and you know, the self-sabotage is a big thing for me, you know, because I was alcoholic. Uh, codependent, severe codependent, love addict, and um, uh, food addict, and spender. I mean, I can do it all. I want to share with you, and I'm all over the place a little bit, so bear with me. Um, this is my, this is my little fuzzy bunny, and I love this thing because it's so soft and so cuddly, and I, I can really squish it, and I can hold on to it. And I remember somebody in recovery that I met that was like a sponsor to me when I was young, uh, uh, said to me, when you feel alone and you need to feel connected, sit in a rocking chair and hold on to a stuffed animal or whatever you have and have some nice music playing and a candle lit and just hold that thing. And that stuffed animal or baby is you. And just close your eyes and let yourself feel the love. 
And that was so helpful for me because I remember I started having these somatic feelings that my father had molested me when I was a little girl. And I couldn't really pinpoint it. I wasn't sure, you know, but I had all these feelings about it. And I, I just want to say, I want to sh- share with you my other, um, my baby doll that's like me. And she kind of, um, and I bought her online and she's soft. She's got a soft body. And I like when I can hold her hands. And I used to think, I remember in, in 1996, I went to ACA and I remember seeing people with their baby dolls and all this stuff. And I thought, oh, you know, no, I'm not going to be that. That's not me. But let me tell you something. It is totally me. And especially when I need to feel, I need to feel that loving parent. And I like to look in her face, you know, really look in her face and look at her eyes. And on her little, um, shirt it says so huggable I didn't know it said that I thought it was so cool that it said that but um I you know I've grown so much and I'm so grateful to ACA and I'm so grateful for the literature I have to say that out loud because when I came in they did not have that and they have come so far um I think a lot of my issues come from not knowing how to relate. Uh, I didn't, it wasn't modeled for me. I didn't know how to do it. Um, But what I have learned is I've learned to listen. I've learned to share uh, at the level that I believe people, I can trust the person that I'm trying to share with. Um, I trust my own intuition for the most part. Um, I like, you know, in our book, it has affirmations. I don't know how many of you are aware of that, but it's beautiful. And one of the things I recently learned from, um, one of my meetings, um, a couple of the people are very, very well versed with the book that chapter six and chapter eight are the most important chapters as far as the identity papers. And, and that is not something to go through and read a page at a time. It's like, sometimes even a sentence is enough to really say, ooh, whoa, okay. I got to really think about that and process that. So chapter six and chapter eight. So let me go through and pull out a few things. I like this where, um, and my book is marked up, you know, I, I, it's an important thing. It's my book. I love my book. Um, It's an ACA help. This is page 34. ACA helps us figure out what we are carrying inside. We are seeking a full remembrance of the childhood that goes beyond merely recounting the acts of dysfunctional parents. With a full remembrance, we revisit the feelings that came with the abuse or hypercritical behavior of the caregivers. That is, I mean, some of the things that are in this book, it's just like, wow. I mean, my parents sent me away. Um, and, and, you know, I was, uh, like I said, I acted out a lot, but I wasn't that out of control until they sent me away. And then I really started to escalate. 
Um, I hadn't gotten into drugs and alcohol at all. And when I was in my ninth grade year, they had me tested right before and they had my brother tested because my brother wasn't doing too well in school. And like I said, they were all about education and um, uh, status and that sort of thing. So they tested me and um, they started sending me to this psychiatrist and it was an older lady and she pegged it pretty good, but she wasn't able to really relate to me well. You know, she knew that I had issues about my birth parents and feeling abandoned and all that. But I remember being pulled out of school and it was so embarrassing having to go in late and all that stuff. So it really wasn't helpful when I got the help that they tried to give me. And I can remember one time I ran off from her office. It was in Great Neck, New York. And anyway, uh, she came out and I was hiding in the woods and she screamed to me, Sarah, your mother's not in the woods. And I'm like, lady, I happen to know that she's not in the woods. You know, I mean, like sometimes people say things and you just kind of go, well, okay. Um, but I think the other thing is my, my father was a big perfectionist. He was, he was a um, chronic hand washer. Um, and he had issues. He had slept with his mother until he was 15 years old. So he had a lot of issues. So hence, I mean, you know, you think about this. I, I think about this. If I had had good modeling, I would not be the person I am today. But I'm so grateful I'm the person I am today. I really am. I am happy to be me. I'm not saying I don't have issues, but I love who I am today. I'm learning a lot. I, I love you. And I never felt that way before. I was so jealous and insecure as a person. Thank God for recovery. Because I, I always felt less than. I always felt like I had to, you know, be the funniest or be the clown or shock value. I, I would always come up with some kind of shock value to kind of freak people out. I like this part too. Sarah, you're, you're muted. Thank you. My book. Am I, I'm not muted now, am I? No, no you're good. Okay. Uh, my book was on top of my um, keyboard. Okay. Um, as children, we focused on the odd or neglectful nature of our parents' behavior. We mistakenly thought we caused their moods or attitudes or could do something to change circumstances. We did not realize that we were children and that adults were responsible for their own feelings and actions. Hallelujah. You know, we all have to take responsibility for our own thoughts and actions. And, you know, I've done a lot of Al-Anon too. And that has helped me too, because it's really allowed me to realize that I got to stay in my own hula hoop, that I got to let go of control, that I have to remember to detach with love from people and let them live their own lives. I like this part I'm on the same page. It says, by living with a blaming or shaming parent, we developed a dependent false self. Our false self constantly seeks outward affection, recognition, or praise, but we secretly believe we don't deserve it. I, I mean, 
it's really genius that we have what we have now. Because, you know, all, can you imagine all these people that didn't have anything, that, that lived without any place to go and, and, and had such self-loathing? And I, I want to say that word, self-loathing. That was me. Totally self-loathing. Um, this page, too, um, I had a lot on this. This was on page um, 98 and 99. It talks about the hero child, the lost or invisible. You know, and I think some of us can kind of wander through a few of these different categories. You know, I'm not all scapegoat. I was a lost child in many ways, too. I don't think I was ever the hero. I, I never was. Um, sometimes I was mascot, but not very much. But more the sca scapegoat. You know, I was I was the living the prophecy of being the bad or the rotten kid. Um, and then I love this part uh, where it says um, on page ninety nine. It says. Um, we confuse love with pity and get unhealthy dependence. ACA experience shows that such behavior dooms relationships. You cannot change anyone. The only person we can change is ourselves. An adult child rarely changes unless he or she, and this is key, becomes willing to learn to live a new way. It's really the truth. I mean, you know, and it's not easy. And sometimes it's like two steps forward, one step back, one step forward, two steps back. But it really does work if we really try to live it and do it. I have many people that I talk to in recovery. I do a lot of service. I really try to extend my hand to people. I, I don't ever tell people what to do, what I try to do. And, and I have some sponsees that are on here now. I try to share my own experience or make suggestions if they are willing to hear it. I always ask, do you want a suggestion? Do you want to hear what I think? Because, you know, the control issues can really get wrapped up in all this stuff. I mean, I really have to be very, very careful. I am not, you know, I don't know what your recovery needs to look like. And I think that's one thing that I love about ACA, that we all find our own way and we go at our own pace. Um, this was really good too. Um, this was on uh, page 111. We use steps six and seven to remove the defects of character. However, we take a different approach for the laundry list behaviors. And this was really important for me to learn. We attempt to integrate them through gentleness and patience. Our traits have great value to us if we can embrace them and transform them. And then it goes on, we must be patient with ourselves as we integrate, the, the this is on page 112, the uh, laundry list traits in step six and seven, the traits are deeply anchored because they are the defense system we developed as children under difficult circumstances. By the way, I was an abused wife too. I mean, my, hus my first husband kicked me in the stomach. I mean, I went through a lot of physical abuse with him. I remember begging him not to leave. Don't leave me. Please don't leave me. I mean, you know, I think to myself and I have so much compassion for that woman. I mean, I, you know, me. Uh, and, and I have to say, even in my process of my weight loss, you know, I think for me, everything is about kindness 
compassion and gentleness anymore. I have no room and no need for any kind of harshness from anybody, myself included. It does not work. It is not helpful. So uh, let's see. Um, Okay, by transforming our people-pleasing manners, we do not stop caring about others. However, we stop going over the line to ensure that we are never abandoned. You know, a lot of people like to stay really safe. And I remember hearing in, in recovery uh, years ago that I had to learn to step beyond my comfort zone. And I think it's really important. You know, when I, when I go to a place and I, uh, I don't know anybody, I try to go sitting at a table to sit at a table where I don't know people and introduce myself you know, stepping beyond a place where I feel really safe because it's, it's good for me sometimes to do that. Then it talks about forgiveness and self-forgiveness. Many adult children blame themselves for passing on their childhood abuse to their own children. That's me. I, I had issues with that. I really did. Uh, and, and I don't feel proud of that. And I feel sad because my children suffered greatly from a lot of the things that I did. Um, I just didn't have coping skills at all, none. And I had no ability to delay gratification, zero. Whatever I wanted, I I went to get, and I didn't care who was in my way or what people were doing or how people felt because I was so driven. I was driven. So it says, we simply repeated what was done to us because it was all we knew. That's on page 113. This is not an excuse, but a fact. With this knowledge, we begin to entertain the possibility of self-forgiveness in step eight. You know, I have to say, um, I do have a higher power. I, I, I am not, I was raised Jewish. I hate to even bring religion into it, but it's part of my story. For me, and my parents were pretty involved, but they were basically, my, my father for sure was agnostic, but my mother was basically uh, she, she believed, but she was terrified to, to die. So anyway, um, and that's imparted too. You know, I, I want to say this because this is a big part of my recovery. When I find my defects of character, I have to say, today I, Sarah, am willing to release the need for whatever, unreasonable expectations, whatever it is. But then, and I write these little cards out for myself. And sometimes it's like, okay, this is my daughter. These are the defects that I have. Then on the other side of the card, I write, today I, Sarah, love and embrace the opposite. And then I need to start to try to live in the opposite. So step six and seven is huge because that's where we find out, okay, what things do I need to ask my higher power to help me with? And how do I go about doing it? On page um, 298, you know, it talks about the inner child, the false self, the loving parent, the critical parent. You know, what I do when I start to hear any of those voices in my head that are critical, I say, that is not my truth. My truth is this, that I deserve good. uh, I want to give good, uh, uh, you know, Really, it's a very um, self-propelled program, and yet we need each other to do it. And I have a God squad. I have people, my tribe, I call them, people that I talk to that know me very well. I think that's a very important part of my recovery, too. Um, I like this part on page um, uh 
298. As we awaken the loving parent inside, we remember a simple slogan, first things first. And this is really important. This was what I was saying. Many adult children rush into inner child work without taking the time to meet their inner caring parents. At, as a result, some of us struggle with finding the inner child until we take this necessary step. The inner child will not usually emerge until we establish our loving parent. You know, that is so big. And I remember hearing a guy talk about that and I thought, whoa, yes. And I don't know if, uh, if you guys have used this, but I just want to put a big plug in for page 328, 329, and 330, which is all about affirmations. And they're so beautiful and they're so fantastic. And you can get online and find all kinds of affirmations to use for yourself. So I like to call my higher power source. It's the source of what I need. So whatever I need, that source has it available to me if I choose to ask or, or to trust that that's going to come to me. I like to wear life like a loose garment. I went through breast cancer in recovery. Uh, I'm in a recovery marriage, been married for 20 years. I'm very grateful to have that. But, you know, we all have our stuff that we come in with. My husband's an adult child too, and he has his stuff. And sometimes, you know, he's on this page. You know, if we get into some kind of a, a, a disagreement, he doesn't want to discuss it. Well, guess what Sarah wants to do? I want to talk about it immediately. Let's get this done. I want to process it through. And he's like, I need to process it. I don't want to process it now with you. I need to have some time. So what I feel like when that happens is I'm abandoned. You're leaving me. How can you do that? So then this person, this, this thing comes out and I just sit with it. And I remember I can be there for myself to put somebody in a position where they feel like they have to be your everything. And that's my sickness. That's what I've done in my life. It is not a healthy thing. It's not fair to anybody. And it's not fair to me either. How much time do I have left? Um, about seven minutes would be 45 okay. minutes. Okay. Awesome. I want to share with you. So when I had my daughter, there was a woman that was there and my, my husband, my husband at the time, I told you, he's the one that used to take off on a Friday night, and not come back. He left the hospital. There was a woman that was behind me and she must've been a midwife in training. And she was rubbing my back. Here I was a 20-year-old girl. I had never had a baby. They didn't give epidurals at that point. I had nothing. And they had me on a Pitocin drip, which is like inducing labor. And they're, you know, this is a drip. This is not on a, on a pump. So they were just ramping it up. And I had no pain tolerance. And I thought I was going to go through the roof. And this woman was rubbing my back and talking to me. And that's what made me want to become a nurse. Because I thought, wow, I want to share a couple of experiences I've had. I got to deliver my first grandchild myself. We were in the hospital. It was an amazing experience. It was definitely a God thing. I worked at this hospital. I worked in labor and delivery. I was a labor and delivery nurse for years. 
And the doctor, I had her, my daughter was non-teaching. She was 17 years old, having a baby. And the doctor did not make it. And I got to do the whole delivery. What a beautiful experience that was. Yes. So that was one thing. And um, my father, well, when my mother died five years ago, my mother, um, yeah, that's the labor and delivery people that I was with. That was the day I delivered my, my granddaughter, Marissa. She's named after me. And I have to say, I did have my, my grandmother, whose name was Malvina, who my granddaughter is named after. She was such a loving person to me. I had somebody. And I'm so grateful for that. I did feel loved by my grandmother. Um, let's see. I, you know, so the school thing. So. Five years ago, I decided, you know, I had enough of nursing. I'm, I'm done. I did home health. I did all kinds. I did the ER. I did the operating room. I did all this stuff. And I thought, you know, I'm getting too old. I really don't want to do it anymore. So my husband had worked as a para, which is a paraprofessional or a teacher's associate. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to check it out. And by the way, we raised three grandchildren, three of my daughter's children. We raised them for 10 years. So we, we have had a lot of things that we've gone through together. But anyway, I am working at the school now with children that are traumatized kids in a very, you know, Title I program where there are a lot of indigent kids, where these children are autistic or big trauma stuff. I mean, some kids have seen their one parent die. They've seen, you know, one, one parent because they were on drugs, they rolled over onto their baby sister. I mean, so many sad, sad stories. And it is so cathartic for me because when a kid's out on the playground and they hurt themselves and the kid comes over, I mean, I'm talking about, you know, kindergarten, JK, through like third grade is what I work with or fourth grade. And the kid comes over to the teacher and, and the, t- the kid's crying and the teacher goes, oh, it's okay, you're okay. I get down and I look at their face and I say, oh, that looks like that hurts. Are you okay? You need a hug? Let me look. Oh, I'm sorry that happened to you. Man, I wish somebody had done that with me. But I get to do it and then I get to feel it that it's for me too. So it's like such a blessing to have that. So what I know today is I can't save anybody. I can't save or fix anyone. What I can do is I can be a light. I can show love. I can say I care. My father, when he died, I had lots of conflicting feelings. And what I know today is that I think as best he could, he loved me. But all during the time, and he had like some dementia and he was in a a nursing home. And they they basically, um, my parents both enabled my brother all of his life. So they supported him and he's 50 years old and spent so much money. And, you know, I cannot afford to hold on to a grudge. I have my feelings about it. 
but you know, I wish him well. He's a very abusive guy. He's very non-compliant with his meds. He's bipolar. And, you know, I, when I saw him at my father's funeral, cause we went back to New York, um, you know, I, I touched him and I said, I'm so sorry. And he said, don't you touch me. Okay. I won't touch you. I don't have to let, I can be like a duck and let it roll off my back most of the time anymore. I've learned how to do that because for me, I have to know that I'm okay with me, that I don't need people's validation to be okay with myself. That is what screwed me up for so long. Needing to have somebody say, you're okay, Sarah. Yeah, you look good, Sarah. It's like, it's like when the wife says to the husband, do I look fat? Uh, I, I got to look at myself. Do I look fat? Do I look good? Am I okay? Yeah, I'm okay. So I no longer abandon myself. I will no longer abandon myself and I will no longer let anybody mistreat me. That includes sponsors. There I am as a hippie with my husband. He looks kind of like Willie Nelson in that picture, but he really doesn't look like that. Maybe Carly, you could show um, the picture. There we are. That, that's how we really look. And to tell you, this was at Niagara Falls with my daughter next to me, my husband, my, my, me, my daughter, my daughter's uh, two youngest children. And it was the greatest experience. Um, do I have a couple more minutes or am I done? Oh, no, I'm not going to cut you off. You can have a couple more minutes. Okay. All right. Well, I'll just tell you. Um, so when I was a little girl, we used to go up to the Catskills and I told you that I was raised Jewish. And so when we went to my father's funeral and my, this is the, this is the trip we went to Niagara Falls too. And, um, we went to the Catskills and I wanted to see where the laurels was. And I'll bet somebody on here knows what I'm talking about. The laurels is in the Borscht Belt and, and it's basically, uh, it was a, a wonderful um, resort that there was and they had a bungalow colony. And we used to go up there every year and we used to go to the, my father would take me to the synagogue there. And so I decided I wanted to show my daughter and go there and see it. And I couldn't figure out where the hell it was. And we were driving and she was driving behind me and I was driving the car. And so it was on a Saturday morning and all these Hasidic Jews were out there walking to shul. And I, I stopped somebody and I said, uh, do you know where the laurels is? And, and the first man said, no. And then these young, two young guys, I asked them and they said, no. And I said, he said, we're going to shul. Would you like to go to shul too? And we're in our hiking clothes. And I'm thinking, uh, hmm. And my daughter's like, wow, this is really kind of cool. That was the synagogue that I had gone to with my parents. And I didn't even realize it because it looked different. And it was, you know, males with the males and the females with the females. And it was such an incredible experience. They were so, it was like going into a meeting of ACA with people that love you and care about you and accepted you. And I had never, ever been in a synagogue where I felt like that. And then afterwards they brought us to the back and, and these people were talking to us and the lake was right behind the synagogue. 
And I was talking to this man and I said, you know, I'm looking for the, for the Laurels Country Club. And, he's, and he points and he says, look over there, right beyond the, this lake. That's where it is. Do you see that, that um, concrete slab? That's where the Laurels was. So it was like, how do these things happen? How did I end up where I got to deliver my granddaughter? How did I end up where I, on the trip with my father's death, I got to have this experience with my daughter. And then we traipsed through there and we got to see where the actual swimming pool was. You know, it was all desiccated, but how does that happen? So for me, oh, look at that little girl. It's all about divine intervention. If we let it happen, if we let it happen. So I love my parents today. I wish them well. I'm grateful for what they gave me, but I'm really grateful for what I have inside of me, what my higher power has given me. And thank you for letting me share. And with that, I pass.